0: Okay. Namaste and good evening to all of you. I'm glad to be with you here tonight for the satsang. I have uh, felt that for tonight I want to reconnect a little bit to Kashmiri Shaivis, to the supreme teachings in yoga and tantra. And um, I have decided to make a comment on uh, one of the poems of Abhinava Gupta, the great master Abhinavagupta. Gupta. He has written approximately 10 to 12 poems, hymns, uh, in which he expressed the essence of uh, the teaching, the essence of his accomplishment. Okay. And... um, There are two of these poems which I quote constantly, the Bhairavastava and the Anuttara Ashtika. And um, I decided to go to share with you a couple of others tonight, one of them, which is called Mahopadesha Vimshatika. Uh, Maha Upadesha Mahopadesha means the great teaching. And Vimshatika means something which has 20 strophes, has 20 paragraphs, 20 verses. So this is the great teaching expressed in 20 verses by Abhinava Gupta. Um, it's a, the it's first time we haven't done that in Kashmir Shaivism intro, even in the advanced teachings, because um, um, there, there was no space for the poems, for the hymns, but they are Amazing in the fact that they sum up a whole teaching in a poetic, metaphoric form. For those of you who are not aware of exactly what's the difference between normal yoga, normal tantra and Kashmiri Shaivism, please take time to watch one of the satsangs in which I speak about what is Kashmiri Shaivism Uh, If possible, at one time in your life, take our introductory workshop, because Kashmiri Shaivism is very unique and very different and very special and very divine. And uh, the people who know, they consider Kashmiri Shaivism to be a sort of supreme teaching in the field of spiritual yoga, and Tantra, and the analysis of the 20 versets of tonight's poem will give you a glimpse of what is hidden into this Kashmiri Shaivism. Being a poem, of course, it has a poetic flavor. Apinava Gupta was a man of art. He was an aesthetician, and he was a musician, and he tried to create uh, the best poetry Uh, by using the Sanskrit language to its perfection. And thus, the teachings are expressed here in a very peculiar way, as you will see. He makes a lot of references to a lot of states of consciousness and concepts of the structure of the universe but in a very poetic way, not directly as drawing a diagram on the board. I will, without any further ado, again, I cannot spend now time explaining what Kashmiri Shaivism is and why it is special and how special exactly it is, but I will uh, recite the, each verse, each verset, And in this way, you'll have the possibility to see for yourselves. He starts by praising Shiva. In Kashmiri Shaivism, God is called Shiva. In Islam, God is called Allah. In Judaism, God is called Jehovah. And a few other names, Adonai, Sabaoth, and others. In Kashmiri Shaivism, the name of God is Shiva or Bairava. Again, we can never have a conflict of names because it's a regional thing. It depends on the language under which that theology was generated and many, many other factors are there. Just for you to know that for these people, Shiva or Bhairava means nothing else but God. What a Christian would call God, that means in their idea the absolute, ultimate consciousness of the universe, the Absolute factor, the top of the pyramid, the one, the unsurpassed. What in yoga would call the cosmic consciousness, the element of the crown chakra. Here in Kashmiri Shaivism is the Shiva consciousness, the Shiva aspect. And he says, he starts the first verset saying, glory to you, Lord. So he says, glory be to Shiva. As you would expect, he starts With the name of God, glory to you, Lord, since your body is the whole universe and your spirit transcends all the worlds. This is the the wonderful concept of unification in Kashmiri Shaivism because God, the spirit, is not considered as separate from the world. For example, in Christianity... And in all the other dualistic traditions of this planet, God is the spirit and the universe is the matter, and spirit and matter are almost like enemies to each other. They are definitely philosophical opposites. In Kashmiri Shaivism, not only that the spirit of the divine is transcendental, it transcends all the worlds, but at the same time, the universe is the body of god god is both in the universe in every atom as immanent consciousness and at the same time shiva is also a transcendental consciousness which is beyond the universe in this wonderful monistic concept so he says glory to you lord since your body is the whole universe and your spirit transcends all the worlds glory to you the light of eternal beatitude. Shiva, for those of you who remember, is considered to be expressed by the word Prakasha, which is a self-effulgent light, exactly like the sun. The sun is a light which is not enlightened by anything. The moon is given light by the sun. If the sun would go extinct, the moon will become totally dark. It has no light in it. It only can reflect but the sun is the producer of light, its self-effulgent, and that's why it says Glory to you, the light of the eternal beatitude. That's also an allusion to the fact that this light represents a state of consciousness which human beings sometimes they reproduce or they render as beatitude, as bliss. Glory to myself that contains endless energies and powers. Here, Abhinavagupta first touches this great mystery of Kashmiri Shaivism, which says that your consciousness, my consciousness, any consciousness, is the divine consciousness. It's very difficult to see it, because you and I, the normal person, we do not manifest in the world As our consciousness. Yes indeed. We are conscious. In the meaning that you. If you ask me. uh, What's happening. Where are you. Who are you. I, I can immediately make an act of presence. And say wait a second. What's happening right now. Where am I. What. No. I can be present. This is called awareness. Or consciousness. That you can be yourself. You can say who am I. And you can ask the, or feel even, the fundamental question. As difficult as this may sound to you, psychology and the experience of thousands of years of spirituality has demonstrated that even the animals with big brains, like whales, elephants, gorillas, whatever, dolphins, they don't have this. There are some very, very primitive streaks of it, in a couple of animals, in a couple of mammals, but still not consciousness. This kind of consciousness that every human being who is healthy mentally, because if you suffer from some oligophrenia or something, you might not be able to do even this. But every normal, healthy human being has this thing that they can stop and say, well, stop the mind, Wait a second, take a break for 30 seconds, just tell me what's happening. Where am I? Who am I? What's happening right now? This sort of presence, be present. It sounds very easy for all of you, because you are blessed with this gift which is illustrated by the Bible that God created man after all the animals and gave him something extra from the animals, which is the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of God and which is illustrated beautifully by Michelangelo in his Sistine Chapel painting. When God is touching Adam like this and giving him the gift of being more than just an animal, of being an animal endowed with consciousness. This consciousness is very simple and we take it for granted. And until today, science has not decided if this consciousness is an electrochemical complex effect in the brain. Is just because we have a next generation brain compared to the other mammals and therefore it's just a sort of electrochemical function or it's something mysterious and transcendental. The quantum mechanics has come to the limit of this magic, mystery, mysticism, because they have noticed, and it's not used consciously until today, like relying on quantum mechanics, scientists have made lots of inventions, starting with nuclear energy and others and finishing with all sorts of wonderful theories about the curvature of the space and other, and other wonderful things in modern physics. But nobody really knows how to use this, which quantum mechanics has demonstrated already in the early 20th century, that experiments which are done at the level of elementary particles and sub-elementary particles, but at that time they did it with elementary particles, with photons or with electrons, the photons behaving like packages of waves, if you know something about quantum mechanics, the experiments would unfold differently if a person is looking at the experiment or not. The very same experiment, which is supposed to be just some elementary particles moving from point A to point B, they will unfold differently if a human being is watching it or not. Therefore, it has been stated hundred years ago, that mysteriously, the quantum level, the elementary particle level, it reacts to consciousness. In the presence of consciousness, or without the presence of consciousness, matter behaves differently. And therefore, consciousness is really something, because it has an influence upon experiments in physics. But what exactly is that influence? or on what it is based, or how to exploit this factor, uh, science has not gone much more, because this is where it goes into mysticism. It's like, okay, matter responds to consciousness. Kashmiri Shaivism has solved this simply by saying, first of all, that the universe is the body of God, and therefore, the universe is not something separate which does whatever it wants, whenever it wants. It's actually part of God, exactly as God has an invisible transcendental part and a visible materialized part, like a blossom, which is the universe. It's like the visible part of an iceberg and the invisible part of an iceberg. We do not see the transcendental part, and we cannot describe it in any way we cannot even think about it because it's transcendental and therefore it's beyond the mind. But And at the same time, the universe reflects the manifested part of the divine. And that's why uh, in Kashmiri Shaivism, when you have consciousness, you, you yourselves, you the listeners to this, you are blessed. Because you have a gift which even if you haven't used until today, Too much? Again, there are feeble attempts that uh, there is something which is cognitive therapy, that you notice a pain or a disease and you put your awareness on it and you say, ah, I have hepatitis, I can feel my liver and so on, and then that would have some healing effect or it would have the effect of a blessing just because you are conscious of it. The mere fact that you put your consciousness on it will have an effect. Animals, animals, do not have this consciousness to say, who am I? It's demonstrated psychologically that this sense of the self, I am, is missing. Children get it approximately around the age of two when they start speaking. As they start speaking, they start having consciousness. A child of one year old, when it looks in a mirror, it doesn't know that it's him. But a child of two years old, when it looks in a mirror, knows instantaneously that that's him, that it's he and the same. Therefore, the sense of I am has appeared already around the age of two, together with the first words which are being uttered by the child. And that's why Kashmiri Shaivism has this extraordinary thing. You are an animal, if you wish endowed with consciousness. And that makes you the next category. You are a potential Buddha. You are a human being, and a human being can do the one thing which animals cannot do. A human being can do meditation and headstand and reach enlightenment, open their crown chakra. And animals can never take that decision, say, if I am an animal... Why don't I do some yoga or some meditation or something, you know, which fits to the animal condition and kind of set myself free? No, that comes only together with consciousness. And this gift of consciousness, Kashmiri Shaivis basically says, it's the consciousness of God. It's exactly like somebody gave you a jug of water from the sea. It's not the sea. But it is exactly like the sea. It has exactly the same chemical composition. So you have the sea, a drop of it, in you as your consciousness. And therefore... We don't manifest as our consciousness. We manifest as our astrological sign, as our Enneagram type, as our emotional preferences, as our basic temperament that we are melancholic or phlegmatic or choleric or sanguine. We manifest in ways which are psychomental and we show to the world our personality. And in Latin, the persona means a mask. And in French, person, in the French language, person means nobody. The mask is not you. The mask is just a fake self. It's what we could call the ego without pejorative terms. I'm not saying ego like an egoistic person. I'm saying ego like not a person who is awakened to the pure consciousness. But we still have the consciousness. And when I show you my consciousness, so to speak, because it's not something which you can show in this way, then I show you God. The consciousness is God. And thus, in us, there is God. My first spiritual teacher expressed it in a wonderful, simple way. He said, in the Bible, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is inside a man's heart. Sorry, a human being's heart. And then he said, I come and ask the question. If the kingdom of heaven, of God, is inside your heart, is the king present in his own kingdom? How can you have the kingdom of God inside you, but not God? If the kingdom of God is there, then God is meant to be as a king, present in the center of his kingdom. Otherwise, why call it the kingdom of God? And therefore, the idea is expressed even in the dualistic religions like Christianity and others that God exists somewhere potentially in you. Kashmiri Shaivis says if you pay attention, that's in your consciousness. This pure consciousness, which in Buddhism, for example, is that just you have to practice presence. Awareness, to be, but not to think about the fact that you are. Just to be without thinking about it. It's, of course, extremely difficult. Be, extremely difficult. I will keep it. I don't want to scare anybody, but I don't want to give false hopes to people as well. Because we live in a universe in which we are enlivened by our vital force, by our personality by our astrological sign, by our preferences, by our temperament, and therefore we constantly show to the world our persona, our mask. We don't show the center, the consciousness, the I am. And that's why Abhinava Gupta starts saying glory to you, Shiva, Bhairava, because the whole universe is your body and your spirit is the transcendental. Glory to you who is the light of eternal beatitude. That's an allusion to the nature of God being Shiva and Shakti because Shiva is the light and Shakti is the eternal beatitude. And then he says glory to myself that contains endless energies and powers. How can myself Contain endless energies and power because myself is the self of God. It's the same I am. You have a feeling which says, I am. And as a great poet said in the 19th century, he said, people would like to change their body. People would like to change their personality. People would like to have a different set of skills. People would like this. People would like that. But nobody would like to not be themselves. Nobody can change that. The fact that inside you there is a feeling which says I am. And I want to be more intelligent. But still me. I. That I cannot disappear. People are terribly afraid to lose themselves. And Abhinabha Gupta tells you, don't worry, you can't, because that I am is Shiva, the Lord of the universe, and it is immortal, indestructible, eternal, omnipresent, and therefore the I am will never disappear. Even if you acquire a horrible karma and you go to hell for 25,000 years, your I will still be with you. The self cannot be destroyed precisely because it is the nature of God. So Abhinavagupta starts the first verset as you would expect saluting God and then he makes a paradox uh, butad or whatever you would call that like the Zen paradoxes. It's almost like a Zen koan where he expresses this nature of what's the relationship between God and I. Because eventually it's the same, but how do you see that sameness? So the second verse says something very beautiful. He says, Glory to you, my Lord, there where you are you and I am I. That's the most differentiated place. That's the place of the world because there you are you, God is God and I am I. There seems to be a total difference. And then he says, there where you are and I am not. That means in the situation where I come back to you, that's called yoga, union. I unite with you and it seems that I am no more. It's like you throw your jug of water back into the sea. Where am I? Only the sea is there. The ocean is there, and I am not, although, of course, the consciousness is indestructible. There, when I am not, but you are not either. There, my Lord, glory to you. He basically gives us the triadic structure of the universe, for which Kashmiri Shaivism is called Trika, a triad, that there is a reality where there is total separation, and then there are two other realities, the reality of energy, where God is manifested, and you are merged in it like an ocean, and then God is also the transcendental part, that part which is indescribable, and which the Buddhism has chosen to call Shunya or Shunyata, the void. Because, not because it's nothing. Because it would be ridiculous for you to do meditation for 25,000 years, and then to discover nothing. The void is not nothing. The Dalai Lama has said it very clearly, because this has been one of the arguments for which Christian theologians, they have tried to put down Buddhists. They said it's absurd. We are looking for life, eternity, happiness... The bliss, the presence of God, and so on. And look at the Buddhists, they meditate to find out that the essence of everything is nothing. But it's not, it doesn't mean nothing. The void doesn't mean nothing. And I think the Dalai Lama has said it wonderfully. It said it means emptiness. It is called emptiness or shunyata because it is empty of attributes. It is empty of distinctive thoughts that can characterize it. It is empty of any differentiation. And therefore it's something which cannot be qualified by the mind. You can find a ridiculous word by calling it that, like in Vedanta. You are that. What is that? I can't tell you because that is just a symbol word for something which cannot be expressed and has never been expressed. We can say that that means the father in heaven. Is it really a father to me? Was it a father when 250,000 people died in a tsunami in just 15 minutes and so on? What kind of father is that? It's difficult even when you call it father or Brahman or that or void. We don't understand what it is. That's why it's called void, because you have no possible understanding and everybody looks for a mental understanding. We are blocked by our own mind. And that's why Abhinavagupta describes three levels. He says there is a level where you are you and I am I. There is a level where you are and I am no longer, because I have melted and then God exists as energy, as Shakti. And there is also a level where I am not, but you are neither. Because it's the void. And there you cannot even say I. It's something else. But that something, please remember, it means something. The void doesn't mean nothingness. It means somethingness, something which transcends the mind and which has never been able to be expressed by words. If you look carefully, in all the religions, in all the minor and major religions on this planet, people who are aware of the existence of the One, they have tried to express this Oneness, and nobody managed, and all do it in a totally different way, and yet they all speak about the same thing. Thus, uh, that's why... We are aware in the traditions of yoga and Tantra that you cannot express things about God. In Vigyanabhairava Tantra, Shiva himself says everything which is spoken about Shiva is like candies given by a mother to trick a child into taking a bitter medicine because actually everything which is said about God is false from the very beginning. If you say that God is great or God is small, If you say that God is here or not here, if you say that God is good or not good, all of them are false. None of them is a true statement because you cannot define God with vikalpas, with concepts like this. And that's why here Abhinavagupta mentions the separation, the unification in Shakti and the unification in the void the three points of the triangle, which is the basic triangle, the triadic symbol of the Kashmiri Shaivis. Full strophe or verset number three. Full of longing, I always looked for you inside my body, as you or as myself. But what I discover when I do not find either you nor I, what I think then, It is you. This is extremely subtle. Because he says, I try to find God as an object, as something which is in my body, my soul, my spirit. My, But God is not an object. God cannot be an object. As we say in Kashmiri Shaivism, God is the supreme subject, is the I of the universe, the I am. And thus, he says, what I discover when I do not find either you nor I, which means I reach the state of the void, where I feel that there is neither you nor I. What I find then, what I think then, that it is you. He basically says, when you get in this state of neither you nor I, you actually, there exists still a pure existence. But it's not a pure existence which you can call you or I. It's simply a subjective pure existence which in Kashmir Introduction Workshops we have called by the name Aham. In Sanskrit is Aham, the symbol of the I. Aham means I or I am. And thus, he tells us, you know, I've searched for God as an object but what I feel when I reach this state of neither you nor I, then that is exactly what the answer is. Saint John of the Cross, a Catholic mystic, related to Saint Teresa of Avila in Spain, he said the answer to the question is he that asks the question. It sounds completely absurd, the answer to the question, like what's the nature of reality? The nature of reality is the one who asks the question. That means this feeling of I am. It's not an intellectual answer. The fundamental questions never have dictionary answers. Because we always hope to give an answer to the big problems with our mind. With our mind we can just define theology and dogmas. But the reality is not a statement of the mind. The reality is a pure state of being. When I, strophe number four, when I, your worshipper, adored you as myself, which is fundamental, like he says often, you who are myself. Like the paradox is that I have the consciousness already in me. That's why I can become a Buddha, because I already have that gift. And therefore, he says, when I, your worshipper, adored you as myself, which is the supreme meditation in a way, I already took your form, because I said, I am you, I am you, you are I. And Patanjali says, whatever the mind is focusing upon, the mind assumes that shape. So he uses the same metaphor. He says, I already took your form. This is a poetic metaphor. It doesn't mean literally to take the form. It means to become. I became like you. Exactly as when people are baptized Christian. In the act of baptism they say, all those of you who got baptized into the Christ, dressed yourself into the Christ. Like your aura has become like the aura of Jesus Christ. You dressed yourself into the Christ. You resemble with Christ. You took the form of Christ in the metaphor of this strophe. So that's what he means by saying, I already took your form. Glory to you, and indeed, glory to me. You can say, are these people narcissistic or egocentric? Not at all. These people have had a supreme spirituality, very refined. It's not an exaltation of one's own ego. They don't exalt the ego, which is the mask, the persona, the personality. They know the difference very well. They exalt the consciousness, that even a person with a very complicated personality and who is distracted and caught by their karma and everything, nevertheless, is a person that has consciousness. And that consciousness of I am, that's a gift of an invaluable character. Number five. To say you must do this, or you must not do this, is just a way of speaking. Since the one who dwells in his self is already one with you. So like you must do you must do headstand all day long. It's just a manner of speaking because you are already Shiva. You have the consciousness of God already. It's not yoga who gives it to you. It's not rituals. It's not pilgrimage. It's not moral and ethical behavior that gives it to you. You have it already. So he says, since the one who dwells in his self is already one with you. How would he merge in you anymore? From where would he do it? You know, like if you do this, you will merge into God. But I am already God. I am already one with God. But as you can see, this is the beautiful spirituality of Kashmiri Shaivism because it does not deny at the same time the human ignorance and the human Suffering. No? Because you can say, okay, everybody on this planet who are human beings, they are one with God. How much suffering is on this planet? How much war? How much torture? How much ignorance? How much whatever? Social violence? Hunger? You know How many people died of hunger, most of them children, today? Today. No, because the OMS says that up till thirty thousand people die every day. We complain that fifteen people died in Ukraine today, but they also died thirty thousand of hunger, of hunger today in the same day. We can't even conceive it. That's why we have a thick skin and we don't get involved, you know. Because if you would get involved, you would start screaming and rolling on the floor. It's it's painful 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 no and thus you can say well everybody is god and how would they merge into god this statement is on one hand a slap onto the people who promise enlightenment like if you do if you go by the four noble truths of buddha and you do the things there you will reach enlightenment one day you will reach nirvana i have already reached it because i am god but the problem is at the same time that people, although listening to Kashmiri Shaivism, they are not ready to accept it. Yes, mentally it's a beautiful exercise. And you say, hmm, I met this amazing doctrine called the Kashmiri Shaivism. Man, you should listen 10 minutes of speaking about this. It's out of this world, you know. It tells you such an amazing truth about yourself. That's blah, blah, blah. Because then people go to their house and they suffer. Either you knock your toe on a stone and it bleeds and you have pain for three weeks. Or you have emotional pain because of your sexual partners or whatever. Or whatever other things you have. How many people have committed suicide today because of agonizing pain in their mind and in their heart? Probably thousands of people committed suicide today on the planet Earth. Why don't they know that they are God and that they can reach? Because, again, potentially it's there. The gift is given. You have a consciousness. And then you could take that consciousness and bring it home. You could realize, you could recognize what the true nature is. In yoga, you would say rise your kundalini to Sahasrara and have the state of consciousness specific to Sahasrara where Shakti is united with Shiva and therefore you have the state of Samadhi. Therefore, we are one with the divine but only in the crown chakra do we value that. That's why what Abhinava Gupta tells is a song of somebody who sees the universe from the crown chakra, who has a level of consciousness in the crown chakra. And he says, to say you must do this, like you should not do that or something, it's just a manner of speaking, it's just a metaphor. Because the one who dwells in his self is already one with you. He's already one with God. How would he merge in you anymore when he is already in you? From where would he do it? Like where is he to go where? To say now I merged with God even more. It's not about merging anymore. Because you are already it. It's about recognizing it. It's about acknowledging it. And acknowledging it is an act of consciousness. Remember it was expressed beautifully in the first Matrix. When this guy called Neo, the Matrix the movie... When this guy goes near, is taken to the oracle, an old black woman who is supposed to tell him if he is the one or not. You know? And the woman can see obviously that he is confused and he died. He was taken by surprise and this other guy, Morpheus, keeps telling him, I think you are the one who will save the world or whatever. You know? And the old woman, she looks at him and he says, you know, being the one is like being in love. You feel it. And she uses some slang. She says you feel it from your toes to your balls. Or something like this. From the top of your head down to your balls. You are it and you know you are it. And she says in your case. I don't see that. No. And then it takes more suffering and tribulations. At which some point in extremis. He says what the heck. Actually I am the one. And then he awakens. To what he actually is, but until that day came, he was the one, but he could not, he could not grasp it, he could not live it out. He was theoretically the one, but in practice, he did not manage to live it out. So that's why Abhinavagupta speaks as one who has tasted that experience. Even saying strophe number six. Even saying I am you and you are I is not the supreme truth since the separation that I am you and you are I, which means two, since this separation never existed anyway. Like there was never I and you. There was only that I was blinded into believing that there is an I and you but in reality they never existed. How can you say that a wave on the surface of an ocean is not the ocean? There is the ocean and then there is this beautiful wave. But the wave is the ocean. It's part of the ocean. You cannot cut the wave from the ocean. The wave is is the same water, it's the same ocean. There is never the wave and the ocean, only as an appearance. But it's not a reality. The wave is the ocean. So he says, even people who meditate and say, I am you, you are I, in Vedanta, I am that, and so on, that am I, is not the supreme truth. This is not the supreme truth. Since the separation of I and you never existed anyway. Such a false state of separation gives birth to the desire for enlightenment. He uses the word samadhi. In Sanskrit, he says such a false state of separation gives the birth to the desire for the state of samadhi. And of course, everybody who is seriously coming to yoga, I'm not talking about the monkey yoga, where you just stretch a little bit and you claim that you do yoga because you are very flexible in the body. You know that if you have been in Agama for at least three days, we know that that's not what we do in Agama. You know, this perverted yoga, this... uh, Uh, adulterated yoga, is just a shell, is just a total superficial reminiscence of yoga. It's not yoga means union. And it means that people have this longing, the desire for enlightenment, the desire to reach to a higher core. I live in ignorance. I am subjected to my own karma, good or bad or mixed or whatever. I am, you know, and therefore I would like to be myself. I would like to get the answer to who am I, to truly find myself in whichever way. I am the Buddha nature, if I am a Buddhist, or I am Atman, if I am a Vedantic practitioner, or I am Shiva, or whatever. And this desire is good. This is what we call here in Agama, it was, to a certain extent, we call it aspiration, longing. Like every person in their heart has a longing for something. And most people don't dare to believe that it's possible. And most people don't dare to believe that it's there. And many people grow cynical and skeptical. And they say, Yeah, yeah, but you saw that when it comes, when shove is coming to push, and someone push is coming to shove or whatever, then this and then, you know, people are skeptical. They cannot see it. You know, people, but. People in the heart of their hearts, they have a longing. Because everybody says, I have been in samsara for a long, long time. And I really need some peace. I need it, as a poet said, I need it, he used the word from physics, repose. Like when an object stops moving, you know, repose. Like the state of zero motion. I just need a break. I need to be in a state of repose. The eternal rest. No, that's why we say rest in peace. No, even to the dead people. May God give you rest. Why rest? Because that rest is exactly the lack of the ego. The lack of the desires. The lack of samsara. Everybody wishes for a paradise of fulfillment. Abhinavagupta says it's good for a while. And then when you reach to Kashmiri Shaivism, you realize that that desire is coming from a feeling of separation. I feel separate, and therefore I want to be one. But if you would know already that you are one, then there is no separation. Then the very desire for nirvana or samadhi becomes useless. This is one of the splendid paradoxes in Kashmiri Shaivism, where basically they say, you need to practice, and at the same time there is no need for the essence of this practice, because you are there already, you just have to discover what you already are. And the verse number 7 continues by saying, Words such as I, you, he, her have no place in you. And the objective external world has even less place in you. That means in God, if God is one and everything is God, then the differentiation that it is I and you, and it's an illusion. Right now, we're sitting here in this room and we are around 10 people. All these 10 people are Shiva. Right now, Shiva is talking to Shiva. You who are listening to me, You are me, but not me, Swami Vivekananda. You are me, the big me, the big aham. Because there is only one consciousness. And that one consciousness is playing ping pong with itself. There is the appearance of you and I and he and she. But that doesn't exist in the mind of God. God does not see it that way. And then he says the objective external world has even less place. There is no differentiation. You cannot say that an object is not connected to God. But that's very difficult to perceive. Eight. Whoever has tasted once the blissful nectar of your love, now he interprets it as love. Kashmiri Shaivism has a very peculiar way of saying how Shiva loves himself. Because everything is Shiva. When I love you, where when I love Shiva, I love myself, actually. The guru of the guru of Swami Lakshmanji, a guy called Swami Ram in India, he was saying, try to squash a worm. And the worm will wriggle and defend and try to go into the earth and hide because even a worm loves its own life. Therefore, this life, this essence which you have, is Shiva. God loves God. God recognizes God. The sense of I is universal. And that's why he says, uh, they say that love is just oneness. I can love you because you are from the same blood as me. You are Shiva. I am Shiva. And when I love you as a friend, as a lover, as member of humanity and so on, basically God loves God. Exactly like Jesus said, you gave food and water to people, and you say, when? And he said, if you gave to a beggar on the street, you gave to me. Jesus says, if you feed a beggar on the street, you feed me, Jesus. Because I am everybody. I am the universal consciousness in everybody. So whoever has tasted once the blissful nectar of your love will never again talk about differentiation. He will not even say everything is one overflow of absolute peace. This is a reference to a verse from the Vedas. There is a verse in the Vedas in which, which is taken as referential in which the Vedic text, old, old, old Vedas, they say everything is one overflow of absolute peace. It's wonderful. It's the thought of oneness expressed in the Vedas very, very long time ago. But he says, when you have experienced the love of Shiva, the love of God, even that becomes superfluous. Because oneness is oneness. So, he takes a very radical attitude that everything is... You know, you can say it with words, but the reality of God is radically different. Nine. When you reveal your true essence... You are you, me, the whole world. But when the manifestation is completely resorbed, like in the void, you are not you, nor me, nothing of this world exists anymore. So basically he says we are one, either in the non-manifestation or in the manifestation. This is in the manifestation, but even when you go into the void, Into the void it's the same oneness. 10. You appear through your own will, like an actor that plays different roles, such as wakefulness, dream, and dreamless sleep, and as if he would be part of them. But in reality, you are never fragmented and play no role normally you would say you are an actor who, who out of your own will act like an actor and plays all the roles like he she and so on he doesn't go to persons now he does something more twisted which only one like apinava Gupta would have had in mind he says you exist in the world of wakefulness which is the physical world you exist in the world of dreams which is svapna the sleep with dreams which is the astral world the subtle worlds and even in the sleep without dreams, which is the Sushupti, which is the level of the causal world. These are the three divisions of the universe, which are expressed in the Vedic tradition by the words Bur, Buvas, Vaha. When you do the Gayatri Mantra, there you have Om, Bur, Buvas, Vaha. Bur Loka is the two lower planes, the two lower chakras. Buvar Loka is number three and four. And Svarga Loka, Svaha, is the number five and six. And on top of these three, there is the fourth musketeer, that the three musketeers were four, which is the divine consciousness. It's like the triangle with three sides and with an eye of God inside, which is number four. And therefore, he says, you appear like an actor, and you appear like you are in the physical in the subtle worlds and in the causal worlds, like you are the gods, you are the spirits of the dead, you are the spirits of nature, you are everything. He doesn't refer only to, so he expands this thing. And he says, as if you would be a part of them, like you are in the physical world, you are in the subtle world, you are in the causal but he says, in reality, you are never fragmented and play no role, because that would be a differentiation. And God doesn't feel differentiation. Shiva is one. This is the famous mystery of oneness in multiplicity. That the universe is a diversity and the Maya and the Samsara and nevertheless the void, the Buddha nature, the emptiness and the Shiva consciousness is one always. And with the mind It's impossible to understand because we always try to build a model of how it is, but it's not a mental thing. The mind is still in the side of differentiation. And he continues by saying, when you are awake, the whole world is awake. When you sleep, the world dissolves in your conscious sleep. Thus, the whole manifested and unmanifested universe is one with you. He says there is no difference if it is in the manifestation, in the samsara, or in the transcendental part, which he says when you sleep, the whole world dissolves in your conscious sleep. That's the pure spirit. That's the transcendental aspect, the purusha. And he says either like this or like that, it's still oneness. And therefore he says the whole manifested and unmanifested universe is one with you. You cannot get out of this oneness. Any form of distinction, or manifested, not manifested, nirvana and samsara, or whichever way you want to put it, is a duality which is fake. In the end, oneness beats all the dualities. The Tong 12 The tongue tires praising your name. The mind tires meditating upon you. How can we meditate upon the formless one? Like the mind needs something to get attached to. But how can you meditate when you say that something is immanent, transcendental, all and everything and one? It's like you don't have a representation for that. So he says we can say as many words. The tongue tires praising your name. The mind tires meditating upon you. How can we meditate upon the formless one? And how can we praise the one without any attributes? Like the void has no attributes. Then what are we praising? We are praising something which has zero attributes. Then how can you praise it? You say glory to you God because you are good. And then a quarter of a million people die in fifteen minutes in a tsunami. How is God good? Why do you say that God is good? You know, why did the millions of people die in war and under torture? And under, how good is God? Why is it all happening? That's why the materialistic and the atheistic people—they even go and say there is no God. They cannot because if there would be God, He would be a beastly idiot. To allow such atrocities to happen on the earth, in the history of the earth, and so on. Not from the standpoint of oneness. From the standpoint of oneness, things are very, very different, but you cannot evaluate them with one. So here, he starts a series of about eight verses, where he simply demonstrates that meditation, praise, rituals, poems, hymns, pilgrimages, and so on, they are completely useless, That people have developed these things from the old days where people were worshipping deities. And when you worship a deity, you can say, oh Jupiter or oh Zeus and so on. You who are this and that, I sacrifice a hundred bulls to you and I give you flowers. And I think you are beautiful and wonderful. There it goes. Because you are talking about a causal entity. You are talking about a deity. Deities exist. And we think they are separate. I am I. Zeus is Zeus. And God if there exists any God. God is something separate. Therefore people have inherited all these rituals. From a time when people were not conceiving this oneness of God. And when you get to this oneness of God, all these methods of meditating and worshipping, they fall apart. And then people say, I did a ritual, a worship to Shiva and so on. And he says, sure, Shiva will understand your ignorance and the fact that you just copycat the old religions and you do, but the ritual in itself means nothing. It's only your awareness which it brings something. So he says, How can we meditate upon the formless one? How can we praise the one without any attribute? 13. How could the perfect one be called upon for adoration? And how could the one who is everywhere be offered a sacred seat? When you worship a deity, the deity sits on a seat like. Kuan Yin sits on a lotus flower and if you want to put her on an altar you create an altar which is the seat and there is a lot of ritual in India for creating the seat for a deity even the statue herself is a seat because basically you can sanctify it and says oh Tara Kuan Yin from China is the Tara from India and the Tibetans call her Tara or Dulma. And then you could say, oh, Tara, come and dwell into this statue and be with us always. And then you place the statue in a very honorable place on an altar. And every time when you come in the room, you make a nice pranama, namaskar to Tara and so on. You know, you offered her a seat. And then he says, how can you offer a seat who is everywhere? Because God is everywhere. You don't need to offer him a seat. Because he is already everywhere. Including in the seat which you want to offer. And therefore in this paragraph. He makes fun of the ritualism of the pujas. That people do pujas because they compare God. To one of the deities from the old days. But God if he is absolute. He doesn't need any of the formalities. Which are given to the deities. Therefore you are very welcome to do rituals to Shiva. But he also says you could do something more straightforward because you don't need to. You don't, he says, how could you call the perfect one for adoration? But he's perfect already. How could you call the one who is everywhere to be offered the sacred seat, When he's already there, how could we wash the feet of the translucent? Translucent means what the Tibetans call the clear light, the pure light and then you wash the feet of the statue why do you need to wash it because it's translucent already no it's perfection and how could we offer the all pure one water to cleanse his mouth because in some rituals of india they offer water because they say maybe the deity has a dry mouth and they want to do like they want to swish it like this and you know like he says how do you offer to the all pure one water to clean his mouth. No, these are childish things in which you project. You think that your needs or the human needs are the needs of God. But then God doesn't have any needs being everything. And that's why it's okay that you have the goodwill to please God. But it's very childish because that's not what is needed. And of course, in the end, he will tell us what he thinks is needed. How to wash the spot. They wash statues in India. Kali statues. How to wash the spotless one. And how to dress him. They even dress them in saris and whatever female day it is. How to dress him whose body is the whole universe. Like God is dressed by the universe. When you look at the universe you see the clothes of God. You see the body of God. He is dressed already with the universe. Therefore it is like what Joke is this. How can you offer perfumes to the untouched one? Nobody can touch Shiva and you claim that you put perfume on him, but he is untouchable in the good meaning, in the meaning of unsurpassable. And how can you embellish the one who is beauty himself? They say that they put a tilak mark, They make him beautiful. But he is beautiful already. God is Shivam Satyam Sundaram. Sundaram means... The beauty, the divine beauty. And Rumi, when he refers to God, he says, I wish to see you with a hundred eyes. So beautiful God is, that he says, I can't get enough of you. I wish to see you with a hundred eyes. I wish to swallow you with my eyes. And then you want to beautify Shiva. It's like a childish attempt, futile, which is not bad. He doesn't say it's bad. He simply wants to show the futility, that there is a straight path. How can you bind the holy thread to the one who is unbound? Because they even give to the deities a string, like in India. All the castes, all the four castes, they wear a string. It's the string ceremony. When you are seven years old or something, you get a string, which shows that you are part of the caste system of Hinduism. No, And he says, how can you give a string To the one which is unbound. You cannot bind God with a string. It's a symbol. And how can you offer flowers. To the one who is beyond perfume. How can you burn incense. For the one who transcends breath. And how can you burn oil. For the one who is beyond sight. Like you cannot influence God olfactorily. Kinesthetically. Visually. Or in any other way. How can you offer food to the one eternally fulfilled? And how can you offer betel? This is this poison from India, this tobacco of India, the betel leaves, which they were offered because people loved betel. It's slightly psychoactive. It's a little bit like a coffee or something. It gives a psychoactive effect. Uh, How can you offer betel to the one who is omnipresent? How can you go to pilgrimage? Around the infinite. Because God is the infinite, is the universe. How can you do a circumambulation of the infinite? And how can you salute the one without second? If you salute him and say, Namaste, Namaste, Shiva, or Namaste, Shiva, but it's me and you, and he's the one without second. There is nobody to salute him. You don't exist so that you can salute God from outside of God he's without second Then who salutes him there is no possibility for that 17 how can you offer light to the self effulgent one you offer light to the sun the light the sun is already the source of all the light in the solar system in our how can you offer him light for what and because people offer light as you know in india they offer candles and lamps And how can you sing a Vedic song to the one beyond knowledge? Because the Vedas are supposed to be the beginning of knowledge in the Vedic tradition. This is when people started waking up and saying the big words which connected them to something divine and immortal. And he says, how can you say Vedic hymns to one who is beyond the Vedas? The Vedas are just a superficial aspect. Eighteen. How can there be an internal or external liberation for the perfect one? Like you say, I internally got liberated. or ex- How can you? Because whatever you do, you are Shiva, you are in Shiva, you are with Shiva. What difference does it make? Nothing. And how can you make offerings to the one who is everywhere present, lacking any differentiation? Like offering a present. I gave you my wristwatch, Shiva. I offer it to you. It's like, there is no differentiation in Shiva. And what sort of gift is that? What what can you offer? Nineteen, which is the last of these. How can you offer a gift to the one who has everything? And how can you offer water to satisfy the one eternally blissful? Like, he already has all the water he needs. You know, he's blissful. He's satisfied. He no, He's pleased. How, what, what is offering water? People offer water. As you do to deities, but to the deities it has a meaning. Because the deity wants that energy, that prana. But what are you offering to God? He says, simply says, God is something different. And we approach God in the same way as we approach deities. And that's not correct. Or how can one send away the omnipresent one? When you approach a goddess... You say, oh, come, Kali and so on. And then you say, now, Kali, please go back to your sphere. Thank you for your, you send her away. But how can you send away God when he is omnipresent? He's here anyway, all the time. Or how can one do the ritual of forgiveness for the one that is transcendental? Like you say, I do a ritual that all my sins should be forgiven. And what does that mean? when God is transcendental. And finally, in the verset number 20, he comes to the conclusion. He says, he wants to show that when having the knowledge in the first 11 strophes, he spoke about acquiring this knowledge, that one who has this knowledge, you remember, he said uh, quite a few things. And then for the last eight or nine strophes, I didn't count them exactly, he criticized the way of worship and of meditation, because it's something different. And then, in number 20, briefly, abruptly, then he ends, he's not a man of many words in this way, he just wants to say his point on this. He supreme, the supreme adoration of God, can be done at all times and circumstances, only thus focus your spirit upon Bhairava, the Supreme Lord, with a thought well unified. Like knowing that you are that, a thought well unified, a thought of yoga, of union, focus your spirit upon Bhairava as being the Supreme Lord. That's all. That's all. Just concentrate on the supreme. And of course in yoga you would say focus on the crown chakra. Because the, yes there are many technicalities to it. Which you learn in yoga. But basically he says you don't need any worship. You don't need to visualize Shiva as a dancer. Or as this or that. You can do it. But it's not necessary. He simply says the only fo- the only thing is this. Focus your spirit upon Bhairava, the Supreme Lord, with a thought well unified. That means in a state of unification, in a state of samyama, in a state where the knower, the knowledge, and the known are one. A state in which the mind reaches to identification. That's the solution of Abhinavagupta for worshipping and he has called this the supreme spiritual teaching expressed in 20 verses. As you can see, the inspiration given by Kashmiri Shaivism is paradoxical, extreme, wonderful, for the people who know about it had taken an introductory workshop or something and they study, again, in Agama, we study Kashmiri Shaivas full on in what is called the advanced teachings, the last stage of the teachings, because until then, people need to learn a lot of skills to feel the subtle energies, to feel the chakras, to control the mind, to control the body, to concentrate for extended durations of time without too much oscillation of the mind, and other and other skills. That's why in Agama, we give the possibility, even in a satsang like this, to know about the existence of Kashmiri Shaivism, and to hear some of its splendid, extreme, ultimate, paradoxical teachings. The question is always, how to be able to be it, how to be able to do what you say, how to be able to accomplish those things, and thus, um, many for many people in India, I'm watching a Shiva series from the Indian television, you know. And everybody who addresses Shiva is always worshipping, 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 doing puja, 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 doing rituals, rituals, rituals. And people like Apinava Gupta are like people. This is really primitive, inferior ways of addressing. Remember what Jesus said about prayer. He says, when you pray to God, don't make all sorts of hysterical and histrionical and theatrical things because God knows what you need even before you say it. God knows, you know, you don't need to shout it. You don't need to say it 25 times. You don't need to. That's just your mind who needs conviction. The divine consciousness If there is a divine consciousness, some people say there is no God in my opinion, feel free to explore the reality and find out the answer to that. But if there is a God and that God is not a deity, that God is the absolute ultimate consciousness of the universe and it is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, then what do you need to do? Because for a deity you need to propitiate that God deity. Say, Zeus, if you help me, I shall give you the lives, the blood of ten bulls, of ten oxen, you know, or something. You give something to receive something. But with God, who knows already who you are, you are united with it, the only thing which you want is, allow me to see myself, allow me to discover myself. Allow me to see that I am you. I am you. And like an idiot, I have forgotten it. And I'm going through the universe. Going in this drama, in this endless drama, which Buddha has called samsara. You know? And I'm going through this samsara. And there is pain and pleasure and pain and pleasure and pain and pleasure. And it never seems to end. And how? when do I get home? When do I get that peace? When do I see? And this is what Abhinavagupta Gupta is trying to say, that the relationship which we have with the Divine Consciousness is very special, very privileged, and it does not need any artifacts. It does not need external things. Whenever we do external things, we do them just to please our own mind. Our mind needs conviction it needs belief and it says, if I give some flowers to Shiva, Shiva will love me more. It's nice to give some flowers to Shiva. You give some flowers to any person that you admire, to a person that you love, to a person, you know, and that the same thing you do with Shiva, with the difference that Shiva is you and you are Shiva and there is no Shiva in you, there is only one reality. And therefore, how do you manage then? He says it in the end. Focus your spirit constantly on this oneness with a unified mind on Bhairava, the Lord of the Universe. And this is it. It doesn't take anything else for that. Uh, Again, the teachings of Kashmiri Shaivism, they are paradoxical for some people. That's why in yoga, there is a time when you stay into a dualistic option... And there you have your aspiration and you are like, oh, if I don't reach nirvana, I'm going to get lost in samsara forever and ever. And Abhinavagupta says, anyway, you are, it's not a problem, you know. But Buddha did not think like this. Buddha himself, Gautama Buddha, he ran away like a maniac from the house of his parents to be like, why couldn't he do it at home? Why couldn't he be just peaceful? No, he couldn't be peaceful. He went and tried extreme methods. He ate one grain of rice per day until he became like a skeleton on the verge of dying. And other and other such things he did. No, And still, he did not reach. And eventually, after six years of meditation, trying different methodologies, this divine consciousness dawned upon him. So in the beginning... Buddha was afraid of samsara and he wanted to find the peace of nirvana. But Abhinava says when you reached it you see that that was just a candy. It was just a boogeyman which was keeping you on the path and with Kashmiri Shaivism you get the final result because people say okay, okay, I want to get to the kingdom of heaven I want to get to nirvana but how will it be? This is how it will be. It will be like there is oneness, has always been oneness. There is nothing but oneness. There is nothing to gain and nothing to lose. Everything is a game of appearances and in this game of appearances you and Shiva, I and Shiva are one and the same. This is the ultimate truth although it sounds too big swallow like okay you know I need some beginner meditation okay start with some beginner meditation move your energy between anahata chakra and sahasrara and anahata chakra and sahasrara that's what we teach to the first level students no it's the most simple meditation with which you start the prana uchara but even this meditation one day when it takes you to sahasrara it shows you the actual nature of reality. The what was hidden all the time, which is this. Abhinavagupta, as a poet, he can be crazy and he can tell it right to your face. He can splash it. Like, I don't wait for you to reach to Samadhi. Here is how it is when you are in Samadhi. Boom. This is what I have discovered. Then, one day, we will be one in Samadhi, he says. In that Samadhi, I and Shiva and you who read this poem will be one because we've always been one. We already are one. Everything is one already. This is the extreme message because a Kashmiri Shaivist gives you directly the diamond which is on top, the cherry on top of the cake, the final thing. That final thing is difficult to see or appreciate by the beginners. The beginners, they just know that they have a longing, that they are missing something, that in this world, something very serious seems to be missing. Something is not working, and either you get power, or you get cities, or you get richness, or you get a hundred children, or you get this or that, In the end, still something is very empty, something is not very fulfilled. And that fulfillment is this longing for oneness. That's why it's very good for the beginners to go for this longing, to think like, what am I doing? You know, like when you come here, tonight you could have been in a restaurant drinking a margarita or something. Like, why be here with me talking about Abhinava Gupta and Kashmiri Shaivis? You could have, okay, let's say you don't consume alcohol, and I'm insulting you by saying you could be drinking a daikiri or some. but you could have been eating a good pizza or something. You are getting out of here at 10.30, it's going to be closed in 90% of the restaurants, you know? And you, would like, why are you here? Because you hope to hear something. You hope to learn something which will lead you on this In every person who wishes spirituality, there is a longing and there is the hope that that spirituality can show you a way to fill up that hole, to fill up that missing thing. And all the spiritualities which are authentic, they do that. They fulfill that one way or the other. Among all of them, Kashmiri Shaivism is supreme but because it is supreme, it is also the most difficult. It is something which takes a number of years to master because you have to acquire certain states of consciousness. Otherwise, it's just a theory. And you can say, Apina Bhagupta in his poem said this and that. Yeah, but did you feel it? Did you see it? Did you experience it? Or is it something which you accepted intellectually? Like it must be true because Abhinavagupta said so, but um, I haven't been there yet. Well, if you haven't been there yet, then your first obsession, sweet obsession, is to go there, to be there, and to experience it. And then you will see if it is fulfilling the lack of, the aspiration, the longing from your soul. Because it always does. Enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining. This was a sample of an evening consecrated to very, very high teachings, Kashmiri shaivas And I hope to see you in other activities here in Agama as well. Um, every time when there is a week where I can have satsang, I will approach subjects. Sometimes I talk about healing and sometimes I talk about the 20 trophies on the supreme knowledge, because yoga goes from alpha to omega. It goes from simple things to very great things. Again, enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining.